Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist here in Rocky Tom. Thank you for listening and thank you for being here. Today we're going to be in Acts 25, actually Acts 25 and 26, as we continue looking at the Apostle Paul's journey across the Roman Empire, talking to the Roman officials. And today we're going to be looking at him as he stands before a couple of different people and specifically look at a story as he stands before a man by the name of Herod Agrippa. Herod being a title. So just for fun this morning, I'd like for you all to think back to when you were very, very young, perhaps even a child, and try to remember what you wanted to be when you grew up. You know, I don't think I was unique among most children, especially boys, and that I wanted to be a whole host of different jobs, most of which were adventurous and interesting, at least to a very young mind at the time. When I was really, really little, I wanted to be an astronaut, as many kids do, blasting off into space in a rocket or some type of shuttle, maybe walking on the moon or even Mars. This seemed fun and exciting, a very kind of pioneer spirit that I had. And of course, as I got older, later on, things became more realistic. I love and I still enjoy technology, so I thought I might work for a computer company or a software company. Then I thought it might be fun to be a lawyer because I enjoy a good argument and a good debate. Also, as I grew, enjoyed finance and investing. In fact, I worked in an accounting office for six years, and I became very interested in budgets and how all of that stuff works and moves together. But I have to say that the last two positions that I ever had in mind for myself was that of a preacher and a teacher. But alas, here we are, and as most of you have no doubt figured out, God certainly has a sense of humor. There's no doubt in my mind. As I was looking at the top jobs or childhood dream jobs for American boys and American girls, for the boys, the number one pick was to be a professional athlete followed by a doctor, a musician, a police officer, a business owner, and then coming in at number six was a superhero. So certainly boys continue to hold on to those dreams. And for American women, the number one job, I actually was pleased to see this, was a teacher. They'd like to become a teacher, then a doctor, veterinarian, a movie star, and a writer. Certainly so many wonderful and exciting jobs, so many things that we want to be when we're younger Because from a young age, we script what we imagine our life might turn out to be. We think about where we want to live, who we might marry, how many children we're going to have, and the types of jobs that we want. But for those who choose to be faithful to God and His calling on their lives, they often find that God's plan rarely lines up with what our desires are, that God's thoughts are indeed much higher than our thoughts. Scripture is very clear about this. The prophet Isaiah wrote rather famously in Isaiah 55, God recorded these words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, there are examples in the Bible as well of God taking life for certain people in a much different direction than what they originally thought. Abraham comes to mind, as does Joseph with the coat of many colors fame, the prophet Elijah, Hosea, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the disciples, and of course Paul, who we are still talking about today. And even though we sometimes think we might be the one to buck that trend and be different, 
God has his way of surprising us. And Paul's life had certainly turned out differently than what he had planned for himself. As followers of Christ, we have a different call on our lives, a higher call. And it's one we must answer if we are to be truly happy and in the will of God. You know, we can perhaps picture Paul the Apostle, thinking back to when he was young, when he was Saul of Tarsus. He probably sat in that town of Tarsus saying to himself, when I grow up, I'm going to be a rabbi in Jerusalem. I'm going to get a good education. In fact, he might have even thought that he would become a member of the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. In fact, many people believe that he actually did fulfill this dream. We know that he studied under a very famous Jewish scholar, Gamaliel, who was one of the most notable figures of Judaism during Paul's time. And we also know that Paul, by his own record, became a Pharisee. He advanced in Judaism, and he was well ahead of all of his contemporaries. But then God changed his plans. On the road to Damascus, God changed Paul's life. He changed Paul's plans, and indeed, he changed Paul's eternity. And once Paul arrived in Damascus, a man named Ananias, who lived there in Damascus, approached Saul, and God tells Ananias to speak with Paul and says that Paul will be a chosen vessel of mine, a chosen vessel of God to bear the name of Christ before Gentiles, before kings, and the children of Israel. You know, those were not Paul's plans growing up. When you look at Paul's travels and his missionary journeys, it's estimated that if you added up all the miles from his three missionary journeys, that Paul would have traveled around 13,600 miles just during his mission work. And for that time, that was extraordinarily impressive. He truly had covered the known world at the time, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the one he had once rejected and tried so hard to snuff out, Paul now boldly proclaimed to the most powerful forces in the world. He spoke to people in synagogues, to rulers of Gentiles and philosophers of Athens at the Areopagus, and he will eventually stand before the Caesar, Nero at the time, the emperor in Rome, the king in Rome. And here in Acts 25 through 26, the apostle Paul continues his trek through speaking to rulers on account of this trial that has been brought to him by the Jews. And we're going to begin in Acts 25, and I would ask you to bear with me. Things are moving very quickly here in this part of Acts. We're almost finished, and Luke who authored Acts is recording events that transpire over an extended period of time, but there are several new people that are introduced. Paul switches about some locations, and there's even some legal lingo that's employed here as Luke records the details and the happenings with extraordinary accuracy. This is Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the man of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, 
bringing many and serious charges against them that he could not that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go down up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Acts 24 ended with the transition of the governorship of Antonius Felix to that of Portius Festus. Now, I realize these names are difficult to keep track of. You might recall our learning about Felix last week. Felix was unquestionably a bad man who had attained his position through bribery and deceit, and his jurisdiction was marked by conflict and chaos. We're now introduced to Festus, and he's presented as a much more competent man who governed well despite all of the issues that had been left by his predecessor. And it had been two years since this trial had first begun, and the case of Paul was still important to the religious leaders. They hoped to make Paul appear before them again in Jerusalem. They could not drop this accusation against Paul despite having no concrete evidence. And this wasn't a case of Paul breaking the law, profaning the temple, or causing a riot. This was an example of pure wickedness and hatred that were motivating Paul's accusers to continue trying to get Paul thrown in prison, at best, or even killed at worst. And this grudge of these particular groups of Jews, this grudge, this unbiblical hatred had consumed them, totally consumed Paul's enemies. And what's even sadder is that these were people that should have known God's law. They should have known God's teaching about hatred and about holding a grudge and about harboring such deep, deep animosity. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, the Jews were told, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This was made even more apparent as we read that the prosecution of Paul was hoping that he would have to stand trial in Jerusalem. They wanted it to move back to Jerusalem, and here's why. On the way, they were going to ambush him and kill him. These religious leaders knew that Paul was innocent, that he would be acquitted, if you will, in any type of fair trial. Therefore, they really didn't want Paul to be put on trial again seeking actual justice. They just wanted to ambush and murder him before the trial could take place. And it's sad because this religion of these people that they were falsely following and had so corrupted had made them liars and murderers. There was clearly something wrong with their religion. But thankfully here, Festus, this new leader that we've been introduced to, refuses to put Paul on trial again in Jerusalem, even though he does ask Paul about it. He says that Paul should be kept at Caesarea. Now, we don't know if Festus knew the intentions of the Jewish leaders or not, but either way, he refused the Jewish request to do the change of venue, 
And again, whether Festus or even Paul knew it or not, God was protecting the apostle from these bloodthirsty Jews. So Festus reopens this trial. Once again, Paul is on trial before a Gentile ruler accused by the Jewish religious leaders of crimes that he had not committed. And we read that they presented many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. So as before, these religious leaders were making these accusations without any evidence against Paul. And in response, when Paul speaks, he confidently rested on both the evidence and his personal integrity. One of the most trying and challenging positions and circumstances that a follower of Christ can find themselves in is to be accused falsely, to be defamed, to be attacked. And it's hurtful because as followers of Christ, we hope to show the world that we are not our own, but that we have died to ourselves, and we are now living for Christ. And yet some will still go after the character of a Christian. Now, why is this such a prominent tactic of the devil, to go after the character of a Christian? Well, it's because we are the only religion in the world that proclaims and believes in a supernatural rebirth. That we're not just following some new laws or a new belief system, but that we are claiming to have been supernaturally born again by the Spirit of God. And if we can be shown to not display that rebirth, if our character can be destroyed, if we can be shown to be a hypocrite or an imposter, then our witness for the kingdom of God can be seriously damaged or destroyed. And notice what the number one strategy is that the devil used against Paul, and he also uses against you and against me. It is lies. It's lying. The Jews here were lying. There's nothing fair and honest about what they're doing. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. They certainly had put on a good religious facade, but they were not following the God that they supposedly claimed to follow. Jesus, speaking to a group of Jews in the gospel, says, You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You may ask, how do we protect ourselves from this? Well, much could be said here. God promises that those who deceive and those who lie will not go unpunished. Solomon records in the Proverbs that a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. And though it's challenging for us personally when these things happen, we must keep our eyes on Jesus through these times, just as the Apostle Paul did. Paul would tell the Colossian church, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you know how you should respond to each person. Imagine if we all strove and strived, rather, to live like that. Now, Paul's next move here is brilliant, and it's a technical move. Paul appeals his case to Caesar. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So even though Festus was perceived to be a solid leader, he also understood that it was important for him to have and to keep a good relationship with the Jewish people in his territory. 
So he asked, are you willing, asked Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Paul says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. I appeal to Caesar. So regardless of what Festus's intentions were, Paul saw through the plot against his life. Again, it may have been supernatural knowledge or just some God-given common sense and deduction. So he said, I appeal to Caesar. It was the right of every Roman citizen to have his case heard by Caesar himself. So after these initial trials and appeals failed to reach a satisfactory decision, Paul appealed to the highest court in the Roman Empire, if you will. And this essentially was the American equivalent of a case going to the Supreme Court. So going to Caesar was the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. It was a dramatic moment. You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. It sort of plays out like a well-paced movie scene. In the next segment, in Acts 25, introduces a man named King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And of this King Agrippa, we know a little of their history. He's known as Herod Agrippa. Herod may be a familiar term to you for those who are familiar with some of the New Testament. His great-grandfather had tried to kill Jesus as a baby. His grandfather had had John the Baptist killed. His father had martyred the first apostle James. And now the apostle Paul stood before the next in this line of Herod's, Herod Agrippa. We're also introduced to Bernice. Now, this is bizarre. Bernice was Agrippa's sister, but secular history reports that the relationship was highly inappropriate and incestuous. So Herod Agrippa here, Herod Agrippa II, he didn't rule over much territory, but he he had tremendous influence because the emperor, the Roman emperor, had given him right to oversee certain temple affairs in Jerusalem. So he comes from a long line of leaders, albeit unstable leaders. So this hearing with King Agrippa was just that. It was a hearing, but he would have influence on the outcome that would determine Paul's fate. So at the end of Acts 25, we read that on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Paul is then given an opportunity to speak, which is where we're going to begin in Acts 26. So down in Acts 26, we're going to read some of, a few of the first verses. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Paul said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. For, and for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is a pattern of Paul's. He says that he felt happy and fortunate 
to present his case before Agrippa. Yes, Paul had truth on his side. Yes, Paul knew he was innocent. But it was far more than that. Paul was sharing Jesus. In the auditorium in the city of Caesarea, Paul spoke to Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, commanders of the Roman legion, and all the prominent men of Caesarea. It was a tremendous opportunity, and it was a personal fulfillment of what the Lord had promised Paul would do, that he would be a chosen vessel to bear his God's name, Christ's name, before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And Paul asked Agrippa a direct question. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You know, Paul knew Herod Agrippa, knew the Old Testament scriptures. And one cannot help but read them and see the power of God, the holiness of God, and the reality of what God can do. If God could speak the universe into existence, if God could create mankind, if God could do all that had been recorded in the scriptures, then certainly God could raise Jesus from the dead. You know, there's an old saying that I remember hearing in country churches growing up. As folks would say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Now, I will say I don't like reducing complex issues and deep emotions to slogans. And I'm an advocate for deep study and conversation with people to help remove barriers for belief. But I will admit there is a beauty to simply trusting what God has revealed and believe his word as it is written. His word is true, it's infallible, it's God's very revelation to mankind. Paul made that appeal to Agrippa. And Paul goes on to recount his story of conversion on the Damascus Road. This is one of several times that Paul mentions this throughout the book of Acts, and Luke records it. He was going to imprison Christians and stop them from spreading the gospel. Then Jesus appears to him in a great light and speaks to him, saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? The one Paul thought was dead was indeed alive, and this holy and fearful encounter immediately changes Paul. Jesus then told Paul what his mission would be, and he told Paul of four results that would come from the opening of Paul's eyes to the truth of Christ, that he would be turned from darkness to light, be turned from the power of Satan to God, that he would receive forgiveness of sins, and he would receive an inheritance among God's people. Now, Paul continues speaking here to Herod Agrippa, but Herod's response at the end when Paul pushes him to believe in Jesus Christ is both telling and incredibly sad. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. There's great irony in this final moment. So what are some things that we can take away from here? Well, one is this. The masses do not know Christ. The masses do not know Christ. I'm going to zero in on something small that Festus says here. You know, I've commented on this before. It's worth repeating. But a massive shift has taken place over the past 100 years in the Western world when it comes to biblical knowledge and biblical vocabulary, and it mirrors the world that Paul found himself in. When Festus was speaking, he said that he had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, 
but whom Paul asserted to be alive. A certain Jesus. Not everyone knew this Jesus. That's why he had to be proclaimed. And friends, may I tell you that despite our small town being located here at the foothills of Appalachia in what is often perceived as the Bible Belt of our great nation, not everyone here knows Jesus and many know very little about him. That's why he must be proclaimed. And as the church, we have to be very careful of two things. One, we cannot assume that people know what we are talking about when it comes to the Bible. And secondly, we mustn't make fun of people when they don't know basic things that we might consider to be common knowledge. Our response should be this, to view it as an amazing opportunity to share these stories from Scripture that God has given to us. Not only fantastic stories, but stories that are fantastically true. To gently instruct and lift people up as we can help them to grow in knowledge. We can't just complain that people don't know. We must help them come to the knowledge of the truth. And everything that this church does must go back to the mission of the early church. The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and fellowship. Secondly, Paul's testimony tells us something unique here about repentance. You know, it's interesting because when Paul turned to Christ as he recounted his story to to Herod Agrippa here, he did not have to repent morally. Paul was not immoral. In fact, by all reasonable standards, Paul was incredibly morally right. But his ideas about God were misplaced. Perhaps this is a barrier to some we've encountered or will encounter. Following Christ isn't merely about doing better morally. It's about understanding the true revelation of God and the nature of who he is and his redeeming work through Jesus Christ. Paul, at his conversion, had religious zeal, but it was misguided. Jesus pointed Paul to the reality of his death, which brought atonement, and the reality of his resurrection, which brought victory over sin, death, and sanctification to us as we join and believe by faith. This story of love is the story that we must always point people to as God's people, as God's church. You know, I mentioned a moment ago Agrippa's final response to Paul. Paul asked King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. You know, I had a friend growing up that said often, almost, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. That's what he would say. Almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And there's truth in that pithy statement. The meaning of what Agrippa said could be in a short time, or it could mean that there's just a little distance between me and Christianity. But however close Agrippa was to becoming a believer, it wasn't close enough. And almost and close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. 
Agrippa condemned himself even more by admitting how close he had come to the gospel and how much he understood it, but still rejected it. He didn't want it. Unlike Paul, he didn't want to turn from darkness to light. He didn't want to turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. He didn't want forgiveness of sins. He didn't want a place among God's people. And he didn't want to be one of those who was set apart by faith in Christ. For Agrippa, almost wasn't enough. Close wasn't enough. Then Paul said, I would to God that not only you but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether as I am, except for these change, except for these chains. Things had not turned out the way Paul would have planned them as he was growing up training to be a Pharisee, but Paul declared his continued trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he did not retreat from his stand despite his many trials for the sake of the gospel. Except for these chains, Paul said, With a dramatic gesture, Paul held up his chains, and I can imagine them clanking and clinking together as the metal rubbed against metal. But Paul was very intentional here. He showed that even though he was in chains, he had more freedom in Jesus than any of the power players of those who were standing around him. Any of the power and ability that they possessed, despite all of the appearances, they were the one in chains. Paul was truly the free man. And they were in the chains of sin and falsehood. Heavenly Father, for people like Agrippa, they live their lives in a prison in which you have unlocked and removed the door. The only thing they must do is take your hand in faith and follow you out of darkness into light. God, please help us in all that we do as a church to be focused on the singular mission of pointing people to Christ. And if there is anyone that is listening, To this message, God, Lord, though my ability is small, God, I know that you are a great God, and I pray that you would speak to anyone who is here, anyone who is listening, God, and guide them to you. Help them to unclench their fists and accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life that he provides, and the hope that is only to be found in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.